Welcome to How to Feel Better with me, Ruth Kudzi. How you feel better is an inside job, and we're going to be delving into ways that you can enhance the way that you feel about yourself and lead a happier and more fulfilling life. I'm Ruth Kudzi, a master certified coach, best selling author, and coach trainer, and I'm delighted to have you here. We all know that alcohol is not really conducive to great well-being. And I know that I've struggled in this space a bit because if I'm honest, I like to have a drink. I like the connection with my friends. I like to have fun. It's part of me enabling me to relax. But equally, sometimes that comes with a side dose of anxiety. And there's definitely been points in my life where I have drunk far too much. And that has impacted my well-being and my mental health. Now, I am a firm believer in the, the space of grey, the fact that you know, we obviously have black and white, but we also have this whole element of grey. And I'm really talking to Stephanie about this today, because when we're exploring what she talks about is helping people reduce their alcohol intake and doing so from a point of that mind and body connection. And the fact that if something isn't working for you, it's looking at how you can make changes. But the way that Stephanie approaches it is quite unique, I think, in the space where it's not about necessarily completely abstaining from alcohol. It's about finding a more healthy way of interacting for it for the individual and we not only delve into this which I took so much from personally we also look at the space of alcohol and recovery coaching and we explore how this space is a space that can do great good but there's also so much that people need in terms of experience as well as training and supervision to be able to hold space for people, as it is always a complex thing. I come from a background where my dad was an alcoholic. He died because of his alcohol use. So it's obviously something very close to my heart. And this conversation with Stephanie is completely what Stephanie's about. It's non-judgmental. It's open. And it is really thinking about if we're prioritizing our well-being, where does alcohol sit in that? And where can we get the benefits without having some of those costs? And it might be for you that you don't drink, or maybe you drink occasionally, but equally, it's about finding what works for you. And I love the way that Stephanie talks about seasons of our alcohol use, because what we may have been a problematic drinker when we were younger, that doesn't mean that we necessarily can't enjoy a glass or two of wine now. So I hope you enjoy this. I am very excited to have Stephanie Chivers with us today. So Stephanie, I have known, I reckon for about six years on and off in that online place. And when I put this call out, I was like, okay, how can we feel better? And there is a really obvious thing that many of us can do, but we don't really talk about it. And actually, it's been glamorized online. We see lots of coaches, including me, sometimes posing with their glass of wine or their glass of Prosecco or their glass of champagne. 
But we all kind of know that drinking too much alcohol is not a great thing. And that I'm someone who grew up with an alcoholic father who has had my own interesting relationship with alcohol. I'm going to let you introduce yourself, Stephanie, and then we're going to dive into this. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ruth. Like you, you know, I love talking about alcohol and well-being, so it's great to be mm. here. Um, so yeah, my name's Stephanie. I'm a coach and a trainer with 17 years experience in behaviour change. A huge amount of that has been focused on drugs. And when I talk about drugs, I include alcohol in that, although we live in a crazy world that says alcohol and drugs. But yeah, so I work with all substances, but a lot of what I work with is around women and alcohol and mm. well-being and improving your life and whatever it takes to do that. And this is a thing. So one of the things we're just talking about is offline is you're not part of the like, you just have to stop completely crew. And I think this really, I know for me and my network and my friends, there's a couple of my close friends who have gone down that route. But for most of us, we actually quite enjoy it sometimes. And like, we don't want to go into that all or nothing. And actually, I've seen that all or nothing, not with me so much, but with people around me that has that has actually been detrimental because they've fallen off the wagon and they've fallen off the wagon. So talk to me a bit about the the reducing rather than the giving up. Yeah, so um, it, I mean, it's fascinating. It's been fascinating for about the last, I think 2015 is when I sort of popped up in the online world about mm. the same time as one year no beer and club soda and people like that. So there was like this thing where all of a sudden alcohol free just sort of gathered momentum and was really popular. And we got dry January and stuff like that. And a lot of the noise became about abstinence. You know, a lot of what you saw online, or although this might just be the bubble that I'm in, I don't know, but it appears <laughs> yeah. like that. It does appear because people tell me, so it's not just yeah. me. But there's a lot of talk about abstinence. And there's a lot of talk, there's a lot of people saying abstinence is the only way, moderation is not possible. And there's there's this whole like shaming thing going on, which just drives me nuts. And the bottom line is a lot of people can reduce, do reduce and feel better and it's fine. And the other problem with that as well, and I've worked with quite a few people who not bad mouthing one year no beer at all, yeah. not at all, yeah. but who joined one year no beer and then find they can't do it or for whatever reason. And then they're giving themselves a hard time, like really giving themselves a hard time. Like what's wrong with me? And they get on a call with me and I'm like, okay, tell me how much you're drinking. And they'll say stuff like two glasses of wine a week. And mm. I'm like, okay, uh, well, professionally, that's not a problem for me. Tell me why that's a problem for you. Like, mm. how do you feel after drinking two glasses of wine? And they're like, well, I feel all right, but what's wrong with me? Why can't I do one year alcohol free? And then you're just like, okay. <laughs> you know, then you have to talk to them about it's okay to reduce. It's okay to use alcohol, you know, appropriately, you know, that type of stuff. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I love this messaging so much. I have definitely, you know, I, I've had times where I have drunk way too much, like way, way too much. Children have mainly helped that. Um, but actually running a business, it would be very hard for me to be in a situation where I'm I'm drinking when I'm working. So yeah. it's very rare, again, for me to drink during the week because I recognize that I'm not functioning that well. But actually, sometimes I do like to drink at the weekends or I'd say most weekends, not every weekend, most weekends or when I'm on holiday. And so it's interesting to me because I've noticed as well, as I've got older, 
that hangovers are worse that I'm yeah. not able to function that I'm cloudy in the morning and so it's that kind of well-being side that I look at that is this actually good for me and the other thing that I have is the anxiety yeah and yeah that is the thing and it's not when I have one glass of wine but that anxiety piece is the piece for me that goes, mm, this isn't great for my well-being. And in a way, that's interesting, isn't it? That it's more that than the hangover. Because maybe the hangover is what we've been conditioned to think that we should have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's really common. So, I mean, I mostly work with women, but it, it can be the same with men. But actually, I find that women experience these symptoms more acutely than men do. Mm -hmm. So men um, can tolerate a lot more alcohol than women because our bodies are just made differently. So what happens is women get older and then you throw hormones into the mix and perimenopause and all sorts of other lovely stuff like that. We start to notice that alcohol is impacting on us a bit more, you know, so it's Mm. with perimenopause, we might be experiencing symptoms like, struggling with our sleep or anxiety or hot Mm. flushes and low mood when actually alcohol is a contributing factor to that anyway so when somebody comes to me with symptoms like oh the anxiety and low mood maybe prescribed antidepressants as well you know and they're drinking maybe not a huge amount I will always recommend hey let's reduce get some alcohol free days in and let's just see how you are and see what's going on and what I'm noticing more and more with women particularly with the anxiety is yes we can massively improve the anxiety by reducing the alcohol but sometimes the hormones is part of the picture and it's something that's getting missed and it tends to historically would have would have been picked up by GPs by using antidepressants but you know not using alcohol and hormones in the picture as well but yeah anxiety is a massive massive one that people come to me for and quite often they think that something's wrong with them and haven't even realized actually this is just the nature of the beast this is what alcohol does it's part of the withdrawal from drinking really interesting isn't it because I know a lot about behavior and dopamine and things like that so I know that we we behave in a certain way if we anticipate dopamine so we anticipate that drink it's going to be good we don't seem to make that connection between the anxiety and the that drink do we no and I think there's a few problems there's a few reasons why that happens so you said at the beginning you think that we know that alcohol isn't good for us however my experience is I don't think people realize the extent how alcohol impacts on our physical and emotional well-being quite often when people get in front of me or in my groups and we're talking about stuff they're like I didn't realize that or they're Mm. reducing and they feel so much better so there's so many different reasons for it the key bit with anxiety is that you know, you're ingesting a drug. And that's what I always encourage people to think of. So like quite often people are smoking cannabis, you know, and then they're struggling with their mental health. Mm. They'll be like, oh, maybe it's the cannabis or maybe I'm using it to manage my mental health. They'll accept that as part of the picture. But I don't think we've been educated very well about alcohol. And I don't think we are talking about alcohol in the context of emotional well-being or mental health, which is a Mm. shame. There is a, it's a huge connection but we're not talking about it. And we're not, if we thought of it in the context of a drug as well, I think that would help us that we're ingesting a drug that impacts on our brain chemistry. And this is how it makes us feel. And that's, it's the drug. There's nothing 
wrong with us per se. So let's dig into this a bit more because you said like it's there is this link. So what is the link? What is it about alcohol that impacts our mental health? So, yeah, it does really crazy things to our brain chemistry. And I'm not going to pretend to be able to (laughs) tell you all about that. Professor is the one for that. Professor David Knight goes into great detail about it. But essentially, it disrupts our brain chemistry. You know, Mm -hmm. that's what it does. And it will do that in different ways to different people at different times. You know, you and I can go out and drink a bottle of wine each and it'll have a different impact on us because of our genetics. And not just because of that, it might also be about our hormones and, you know, what else is going on in our life. So it's very, very complex. So the bottom line is to remember that you're ingesting a drug. It impacts on our brain chemistry. It disrupts the balance of our brain chemistry to varying different degrees. So. One of the things that Professor talks about is he thinks about it in terms of if you're drinking regularly in significant amounts, and unfortunately, we can't really say what the amount is because it's different for everyone. Mm. It's like having a virus in your computer, which I think is a great analogy, because when you think about our tech equipment, our computers, like we look after that. You know, the last thing we want is a virus because we don't want anything to happen to our emails or we know we need it for work and that type of stuff. But then we're ingesting alcohol, which is a very similar thing in terms of how it's going to disrupt our brain chemistry. You know, it's disrupting the efficiency of your brain. So you've got the anxiety. Then what comes with that sometimes is loud internal dialogue or negative thoughts or, you know, maybe just critical thinking, that type of stuff. You've got the disruption to your sleep, which impacts on your brain chemistry on its own Mm. and also your mood and your emotions. It impacts on your self-esteem. So lots of people might know about depression and anxiety, but the bit where people are sort of maybe not noticing it so much. So somebody that maybe drinks 30, 40, 50 units a week might be feeling okay, but actually it's probably impacting on their sleep, their energy, and definitely their self-esteem. Because mm. something that I notice is when people reduce and they have alcohol-free time or just generally drink less, they just feel so much better about themselves and they have more confidence and more resilience and the voice is quieter. They can manage their emotions better. Mm. So it's a little, it can be insidious in those lower amounts as well. And what's interesting there is that we often, and when I say we, I do mean me as well, often I will and I have gone to situations and I like I found out I was, I've got ADHD I probably have some other things as well going into social social situations when I am not feeling confident yeah that is when I could I could really not not really moderate my alcohol intake as much so I could go for dinner with my friends down the road and have two glasses of wine I could meet my school friends and have to like I I would never have a problem it's when I'm in situations where I don't feel confident that I have that urge to overcompensate somehow yeah and that's and the ironic thing is as you're saying it actually reduces your self-esteem yeah yeah absolutely and that's that's a classic example of when we look at you know we unpick those triggers so somebody will come to me and say 
sometimes I can moderate, but sometimes I overindulge. And when I overindulge, you know, either that is risky behavior or the anxiety is terrible. You know, it's having enough of an impact on them to want to talk to me. Mm. And then we look at, well, what are those situations? And usually it's quite a particular situation around an environment or people or how they feel about it. Like you've just described, when I go into a situation where I don't feel that great, that's that's a warning sign for me that there's a tendency for me to overindulge, to drink faster than I normally would do. What would you say to a client that comes to you around if they're identifying those things? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So if somebody came to me with that, we would first of all, it's getting them to identify where they are overindulging and what is it about that situation? You know, is it the environment? Is it the people? Is it how they feel about it? And we would just have a look at that and see what the triggers are. Then there's a number of different options depending on what the level of risk is. So if Mm. somebody's drinking is quite high risk, what we would probably do is just eliminate that situation to start off with. We wouldn't want to do that permanently because that's, you know, that's not going to help the person. But to start off with, we want them to feel good about what they're doing. So you want them to do like a month, a couple of months where they are having an occasional drink and they're feeling good about that Mm. and they're working through how they feel about doing things alcohol free, you know, picking the low hanging fruit and testing out some really simple stuff. And then when they're feeling a bit better about themselves, they have some self-belief, then we would go in for the, the tricky situation and we would look at different strategies around that about actually when they attend. So at what point would it be easier for them to attend? Is it better for them to attend a bit later or a bit earlier? You know, what works for them in terms of their processing and how they feel? Because for some people, getting there early helps them, you know, so they can go, get a soft drink, drink it slowly, acclimatize, some deep breaths. And it's the different strategies around what works for the person. So for some people, you know, if they're feeling nervous and it's about connecting, then what you do is you get them to connect with one person and just focus on that one person so that they're not feeling overloaded. And you just set them different tools throughout the event. The idea is that you want somebody to learn how to do that without alcohol before you reintroduce the alcohol. Um, You do it over stages so they feel good about it. And so really the thing is, if people are listening, if they are finding that they're drinking too much either in certain situations or that they're feeling like they're drinking a lot and they're feeling that their mental health isn't where it needs to be or they're not having alcohol-free days, then it, it it's about looking at that behaviour, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it's the key bit here is one of the fascinating things about alcohol as a drug is that it's everyone and anyone And it's everyone and anyone at different stages of your life. So it's not, you know, going back to what you said about all or nothing thinking, which is the sort of alcoholic 12 step model. You know, once you've had a problem, you will always have a problem. Well, you know that from, you know, neuroscience and coaching. That's not the case because, you know, when I was problem drinking, my life was very different to how it is now. So Mm. it's just not even an issue for me. So there's a bit about understanding that actually you're a human being and human beings like substances, you know, they like to alleviate pain and they like to seek out pleasure and there's nothing wrong with that. 
but it's about understanding the substance, understanding what it is for you, and then learning how to address that. And there's so many different ways to do it. And obviously, I mean, can you just share here? I was going to do it at the end, but because we'll probably continue to talk, but can you share here where people can find you? And we'll put it in the show notes as well. Yeah, so I run a little community interest company called Women Who Don't Drink. We do work with men as well, but a lot of what we do is around women. Um, I run a group which is tailored to the individual. So there's lots of different ways that we support people. We've got an online coaching program and we have a secret Facebook group and we do Zoom calls and we keep the group small. So we tailor the content to the individual. It's not a set program because people don't fit into boxes even people that have problems (laughs) with drinking you know so we get to know the person and we you know there isn't a set program the content is tailored to that individual and there are a number of coaches that work one-to-one that are vetted by me which as you know is very important to me in my space shall we talk about that let's go so I I have said to you like who who do you recommend for as coaching in the space because what we've seen and we've probably all seen this is over the years there have been lots of people very well-meaning people who maybe have had a problem with alcohol been able to sort it and then thought they can help people and that just scares the bejesus out of me I know it does you too so let's share your ideas on this part of the industry so it's really really difficult because Yeah, it's like, so people ask me, you know, there's two sides to it. There's what qualification do I need to take or what what am I looking for when I'm choosing a coach or a counsellor or, and it's really, really difficult because when it comes to alcohol, because there is no accredited body, there isn't, Mm. you know, I mean, we could loosely say the FDAP, Federation of Drug and Alcohol Professionals, but I used to be an assessor for the FDAP and I'm not trained in FDAP, that tells you how that's not great in itself (laughs) I used to assess and wasn't even trained in it and personally it's not worth the paper it's written on it just it just means that you can read stuff and regurgitate stuff so it's a bit like an MVQ yeah Um, it's not popular for me to say that but it's the truth so what I'm looking for is I'm looking for people that have worked with people with drug and alcohol problems in a format where they've had good quality clinical supervision so Mm. ideally what I'm looking for is people that have worked in drug and alcohol treatment services that have worked in rehabs or you know maybe our counsellors or coaches that have worked with somebody like me so they've Mm -hmm. had that clinical supervision but what's brilliant about getting that experience in treatment services is you get that team support the good practice Mm -hmm. the clinical supervision you work with the nurse prescribers with the consultants you know you do a year in that environment you are ready with a clinical supervisor to go out on your own. That's what I would say. It's very unpopular. Nobody wants to hear it because they (laughs) want to get their qualification and they want to start working with clients. And that's great. And I'm not saying don't do that, but get yourself a clinical supervisor that has that experience in the field, not just a supervisor for coaching or counselling. They must be a specialist because the trouble with alcohol is, With alcohol, you must do a free consultation because you have to qualify where they're at. You have to see if they have a physical addiction to alcohol, but also if they have any other problems around their mental health or physical health. And then you need to be able to refer on. The difficulty with the alcohol-free coaching is it's not a pure business model because Mm. it's not about clarity calls or converting clients. It's about 
what does this client need and where would they best get that support? So you're not thinking, how do I make money out of this client? You're gathering information to think, okay, this client needs EMDR, this client needs some medication, this client needs a detox, and none of that's probably got anything to do with you. So you you know there's a lot of ethics around it, which is a little bit of un- unpopular when people are being trained in a certain way, which is a business model, and then they get in front of me and I'm like, yeah, you need to do a free consultation and that could take up to an hour. And they're like, well, I've been told it's 20 minutes for a clarity call. I'm like, on the alcohol-free space, if you need to spend an hour with someone, you, that's what you're doing. <laughs> and it's because it is actually, this is more of a clinical space. And, and I remember when I, I spoke to you about my friend, you might still do it. He said, it's great if you have a, a coaching qualification, like a general coaching yeah. qualification or a general counseling qualification and plus that experience. Because yes. there is that element of, you know, yeah, I remember like my dad, he couldn't stop drinking. Like his body was physically addicted to alcohol. So yeah. he could never just stop stop drinking. And yeah. I guess that, that is that is what scares me a little bit about the space as well, because yes. I've I've got that lived experience of seeing that physical dependency. And also it's it's interesting because I say to people, you know, if you are wanting to go into this space, speak to Stephanie, but actually getting experience in this space, like if you if you did the coaching and then you did a year in that in in some kind of clinical support role you're going to be able to really help people and if that's what your passion is then if it takes you a bit longer then surely that's okay yeah absolutely and you know what drug and alcohol treatment services are struggling they're Mm. struggling to get staff they're struggling to keep staff all right you may not get a job to start off with you might have to go in as a volunteer but once they get to know you and see that you know you've got a good attitude and you're ready to learn you will get a job as a drug and alcohol practitioner you know you don't you don't need to have qualifications to be a drug and alcohol practitioner my team was multidisciplinary it would have people that you know with criminal records with very serious criminal records I would have um, teachers probation officers counsellors therapists people with PhDs and I would have people from 12 step who were just bloody brilliant at their job you know they didn't have a qualification but they had a great attitude and they had an understanding of the client group and then you could work with them and they would learn so it's not always about qualifications which is unpopular it's it's about the experience <laughs> of working in it's it is about working in the teams because the nuances of dependency I mean I'm 17 years in and I have a phenomenal clinical supervisor who's a specialist in the field nationally and I miss things and I've worked with thousands and thousands of clients and I'll sit in front of her and I'll talk about a client and she'll be like oh have you thought about this stuff and I'll be like no oh I totally missed that and that's why yeah it's really important yeah and and I'm really glad that we went there because I do think I think it's part of the space that is gray like in the and I think that the more that we can shine a light on that and actually not say just kind of say to people, really consider what you what you want to do because it's great to help. It's a brilliant to help, but we want to be in a position where we are doing so in a way that is always helpful. 
uh, do no harm, isn't it? It's that classic. Yeah. It's like you sign up to a code of ethics. It's like do no harm. And if you know if you're going to work with people and they're drinking, then you need to understand about reduction and withdrawal and symptoms and risks. And you need to have a supervisor that can teach you about that. And you need to be committed to that for at least a year um, so that you can build up that knowledge before you even do it. And if you're not sure, get some training and support. But you can also coach people that are alcohol free. But you still need to do that. Training. You still need to understand because if somebody's got a drinking history and they come to you and they're alcohol free and they come to you for some coaching. That's brilliant. But then what if they relapse? Do you understand what the risks are of their relapse? Are you able to get the support you need for that person? So much there. I never have gone into that space because my personal history would mean that. Yeah. Like it, it's just a space that, that I know wouldn't work for me, which I think is really interesting as well because some people with personal history, they go, yes, I'm going to go into that space. And for me, I'm like, I'm going to keep away from that space because I can't. I'm, I've got too much stuff in that space that is going to be really hard for me to, to distinguish from the client. Yeah, I did when I started out, but I didn't, my brain doesn't think like that. So my, my brain thinks, oh, I'll go and do that. I want to do that. And it doesn't think it through and is blissfully unaware <laughs> of what, what I might be doing. It's just, I, I've always operated like that. And I always do. I find myself in situations because of it. I'm like, oh God, I didn't really think this through at all when I get in I, it. I mean, I definitely go to my brain doesn't think things through as well. But I, th- I think that, that that was one of the, the rare cases it did. So yeah. we've done, we, we've kind of covered a lot of ground here. And I think the big thing for me is about that actually being really honest with ourselves about where we are with things. Yeah. Reaching out to someone like Stephanie, if you want support reducing your intake. And if you know that you've got problem drinking, where's the best place to go if you know that you're kind of beyond reaching out to someone like you yeah so I mean I will do free consultations with anyone I don't mind if it's a suitable client for me or not because I'm more than happy to talk through what the options are and what that means to that person so I'm quite happy to do that and probably a couple of the coaches on my website are very well trained and able to do that as well obviously you're a GP now yes I know that will be hit and miss we know that but sometimes it's useful. You just don't know. So it's always worth a go to have a conversation with your GP. Um, drug and alcohol treatment services, are, again, hit and miss depending on the area, but always worth a go. And then, yes, contacting somebody like me who has a specialism around alcohol assessment so they can actually do that free consultation and then talk to you about your different options, you know, around detox and medication and rehab and stuff like that and help you find what might be suitable, which doesn't cost anything because that's part of what we should be doing in terms of good practice. Amazing. Stephanie, this has been incredible. And I hope that everyone who's listened has got lots out of this and will start to be a little bit more considered around their relationship with alcohol. Yeah, absolutely. It's just it's just being honest with yourself, isn't it? It's like what happens when you drink? You know, when are you drinking? Is it appropriate use of the drug? You know, are you using it to cope with life? It's all that type of stuff, isn't it? Well, thank you. Thank you you very much. We definitely covered a lot in our conversation. I think that really recognising the complexity of this issue is so important because Alcohol is something that is plentiful. 
And what I would recommend is navigating your own journey. Obviously, if you think that your drinking is problematic, getting support. Stephanie has said that you can always reach out to her for a conversation. And if you are thinking about working on reducing your intake, speaking to somebody like Stephanie, who's got the training and expertise is so important. I would only recommend working with people who've got that combination, as Stephanie said, of actual practical experience working with people in these fields alongside that coaching or counseling or therapeutic background. That means that you have the skills to hold people who are navigating their new relationships with alcohol. I know it's made me reflect. It's made me think about my own relationship and explore other ways that I can have that connection with friends outside alcohol. And it's something that I've been looking at for quite a few years now. And it's always useful to reflect and learn and think about what do I need right now? I hope that you've got some practical things that you can take away so that you can feel better. If you have enjoyed this episode or if you've got any feedback at all for me, hop on over to Insta, find me at Ruth Kidsey and drop me a message. I will be delighted to talk to you. Take care.